How many of you have ever competed in a triathlon? Anybody? Nobody? A triathlon? That's swimming, biking, running. Okay. All right. Well, who, did somebody? Or somebody raised their hand, point to him. So I know who, who did. No? Okay. Rachel Seifring. Anna Rognes. Yeah. Okay, a couple. Well, if, for all the rest of us, <laughs> um, there are triathlons of different lengths. But probably the most infamous triathlon um, is the Hawaii Ironman. If you're not familiar with that, what that entails for men and women, which I would argue is probably has to be like the world's most grueling sporting event, um, is this. It's a 2.4-mile ocean swim in the Pacific with currents and all that goes with that. A 112-mile bike ride in the blazing sun over lava. <laughs> and then, like when you're done with that, you know, you just think, I am so chipper right now. You, you run a 26.2-mile marathon. Yes, it's tiring just to think about. Um, and I, I learned, so I was looking into this this week, um, partly because I thought there was an illustration for the sermon, partly because I thought there's something within me that says, just because it looks hard, I want to do it. Um, but I learned that the, no worries, Lisa. <laughs> um, I learned that the world record for all of that, I know, right? Sabbatical, Ironman. <laughs> I learned that the world record is just over eight by some Australian dude in 2011. So nine to five, think about what you got done in a typical work day. <laughs> think about what that guy got done. I mean, I, I finished one marathon in my life. I did finish, um, barely. And it just about did me in. I, I remember crossing the finish line and, and literally, like, parts of my body were just shutting down. I'd be like, wow, I can't even, like, move my leg. You know, I'm just sort of walking and it's like bent like this, and that's awkward. Just shutting down, and I can't imagine doing that after all the swimming and biking. And you know, people have finished Ironmans, thousands of people in some ways. Um, so we know it's humanly possible, but but I think there has to be. I can only imagine. I mean, how many points are there along the way in an Ironman when you have to think? I wonder if I'm going to make it. I mean, I. I can't imagine. I think I'd be thinking that after like mile one of the swim. And because you know other people have finished, you know that endurance is possible. But because you know yourself and your own weakness to some level, you start to wonder if finishing is going to be impossible for you. And I think, folks, that many times the Christian life can feel like that. You know, you... You believe God is real, you believe God is good, you believe God's in control, and then suffering hits you square in the face. And not just once, but, you know, again, again, again. It just feels like suffering wherever you are, it's, it's finding you and grabbing you and just popping you over and over and over again. Troubles multiply against you, sorrow and anxiety begins to overwhelm you. Maybe some of that suffering is, is your own fault, and you know that. Um, maybe it's not your fault, but, but either way, it's really hard for you not to lose heart 
not to get discouraged. Maybe you feel like a failure or like like giving up. And, and if you haven't hit those points in your life, friend, I, I just want to warn and prepare you. They're coming. <laughs> they're coming. There will be points in your life when you're going to be tempted to lose heart or call it quits. And usually the cause behind that, for many of us, is some form of suffering. Typically that's high on the list, the things that, that cause us to feel like, I'm just going to lose heart, I'm just going to quit. Um, that can be suffering that's come your way directly, something hard that's happened to you. That could be suffering that's, that's affecting you indirectly. So, you know, somebody that you love, something hard has happened to them. And the Ephesians fit into that second category. They, they love the Apostle Paul. They were, they were so grateful for the Apostle Paul. I mean, after all, uh, the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, humanly speaking, the Apostle Paul was the reason that they had come to enjoy a growing relationship with God. Paul, Paul was the one who had brought the gospel to them. But now he's in prison. And you can imagine if your spiritual leader is in prison, you'd have to start to wonder, is there any hope for me? So you, you talk about salvation, Paul. You, you talk about all that God's done for us. But then I look at your life. I see the suffering you've experienced, the suffering that you're even now experiencing. And I struggle, Paul, not to get discouraged i've been trying to faithfully follow jesus but i but i just seem to hit one trouble after another and when i look at you my spiritual leader i say oh wow you're sitting in prison well that makes me start to think that maybe it's just all downhill from here i think paul knew that the ephesians were tempted to lose heart that's what I'm describing, just losing heart. And God knows we're tempted to lose heart. And so God exhorts us in Ephesians 3, 8 to 13, that those who persevere in the faith, those who are able to persevere in the faith, those who make it to the end, do so because they believe that God's grace toward us will achieve God's purpose for us. That's Paul's point. That's the main point of this sermon, that God's grace toward us will achieve God's purpose for us. And in that, we have good reason to not lose heart. So let me read Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, Paul is speaking here, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose 
over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I think it's tempting to read those words and, and think, well, that's just Paul talking about Paul. And he is. It's, it's autobiographical. He's talking about what the Lord's, the Lord's done in him and through him. But folks, these verses are more than autobiographical. They tell us something about who God is. And Paul gives us here two big rocks, fundamental truths, pillars, whatever you want to call them, foundation stones that enable us to persevere in the faith if we will embrace them with faith. So, so here's what's going on here. God isn't just saying, hey, you. Don't lose heart. Oh, okay, okay, don't lose heart. I wonder how I do that. No, God says, hey, you, don't lose heart. And I'm going to give you reasons for that. Sturdy reasons. Reliable reasons. God never tells us, just do it. He always gives a reason. We don't always understand the reason. But he always gives a reason. And in these verses, he gives us two reasons to not lose heart. Steadfast reasons, realities that I would argue cling to us even when we we, we fail to cling to them. Okay, so here's the first. I take this from verses eight and nine. Why not lose heart? Because the grace of God is powerful. Paul says what? Verse eight. To me, this Grace was given. What's grace? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor in the form of salvation from sin and power to live the Christian life, a godly life. And in this case, God's grace enabled Paul to do two things, to tell the Gentiles about Jesus and then to explain to Jew and Gentile alike that God, through Christ, was actually uniting them together in one body. By uniting both of them to Christ. That's what God's grace was doing in Paul. So, so what is Paul's experience of God's grace, God's enabling power for the Christian life, tell us about God's grace? What We're looking at Paul's experience to learn something about God's grace that will help us not lose heart. And I think here he gives us a number of reasons why the grace of God is powerful. We don't lose heart. Why? Because the grace of God is powerful. Well, how's the grace of God powerful? First, because it's undeserved. Notice what he says, beginning of verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, why, why would Paul say that? Very least of all the saints. He actually invents an entirely new Greek word that had never been seen before. When he says that, that literally means, I am Less than the least. So find the least and take the least of the least. Say, what? Well, 1 Corinthians 15.9 gives us the reason. Why would Paul say that? For I am the least of the apostles, Paul says. Unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. Or as Luke writes in Acts 8. He refers to Paul by his first name, Saul. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and 
and committed them to prison. What's the point? From a human perspective, God couldn't have picked a more unlikely person to become the greatest missionary in the first century of the church. Okay, no one was more opposed to faith. And he wasn't just blogging about it with an attitude. He was literally killing people. He was doing what we shudder at seeing go down in Syria. And not that far from Syria. He devoted his life to eradicating and murdering Christians. So if anyone was going to get struck by lightning... It should have been Saul. So what did God do? I'm going to make that man a pastor. Who? That guy. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the nations. Friends, I wonder how many of you look at your life and conclude, I am way too messed up for God. I had my chance and I blew it. He told me what to do and I didn't. And so you sit there convinced that what little hope you had to experience the favor of God has come and Gone. You don't need someone to convince you that you're the least of all the saints. You're already convinced in your own mind that you don't even qualify to be a saint. Friend, if that's you, I believe the Lord would speak to you today from Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Friend, the track record of your life doesn't qualify you to receive the grace of God any more than it did Paul. And if God would pour out grace on a man like that and make him a pastor, then do you really think there's anything you can do to deserve God's favor? The the, the whole point of it is that it's a gift. It's a gift. It's undeserved. Well, what makes the grace of God powerful? The fact that it's undeserved. That's the first thing. And second, it's powerful because it's inexhaustible. So it's undeserved. It's inexhaustible. Look back at verse 8. We just keep getting better. Paul says to me, though I'm the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Don't move quickly past that. In other words, you can't exhaust, what's he saying? You can't exhaust the grace of God in Christ any more than you can deserve the grace of God in Christ. The grace of God in Christ, as Paul says, is unsearchable, inscrutable, or 
fathomless. Many of you probably know that, that the deepest point on earth is a place called Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And in 2010, the United States Center for Coastal and Ocean Mapping measured its depth, get this, at approximately 36,070 feet. It's a trench in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Okay? If you're not familiar with geography, that's like taking Mount Everest, adding roughly 7,000 feet to it on top of Everest, and then flipping the whole thing upside down and sticking it in the water. Okay? That's how deep that is. And if any part of Earth would be unsearchable or fathomless, you would think that the Challenger Deep would qualify. But in 1960, and then again in 2012, 2012 was with James Cameron of all people, um, a man, in 1960 it was, it was a small group, went down in a submarine to the bottom of that trench. Yeah, crazy. So what does that prove? What does that prove? Besides the fact they're crazy. I think it proves that the most seemingly unsearchable parts of earth can still be fathomed. Can still be measured. Its limits can be known. Its borders can be defined. Church, not so with the grace of Christ. Not so. Not so. No human mind can fathom the riches of his grace. And no sin is too great to be covered by his blood. So God's grace is only given in response to faith. But it is God's grace that enables our faith, enables our repentance. What's that mean? His grace knows no borders, no boundaries, no limits. The grace of God is fathomless. Which means we grow in our understanding of it, we grow in our experience of it, but it can never be exhausted. You can't tap out the grace of God. He always has more chips. (laughs) Always. Which is why Paul says in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Or, Or as one man once said, I love this, there is more grace in Christ than sin in us. Isn't that amazing? Why is the grace of God powerful? Well, what's undeserved, it's inexhaustible. And then thirdly, it's satisfying. There's a reason that Paul said God called him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable what? Knowledge, awareness, understanding. No. What did he pick? Riches. Riches or, or wealth. Might be a better translation. Okay, He didn't say insight. He didn't say principles. He said riches. Why did Paul say that? Well, because Jesus isn't just true. Jesus is satisfying. To know Christ is to find the deepest longings in your soul completely filled. Completely filled. And, and Paul's experience in that regard wasn't, wasn't unusual. Don't, don't let yourself think, 
Well, well, Paul sort of, maybe he was taking something or on something. He just had this like crazy spiritual experience. I don't know about him, but I've never felt that. Well, King David felt the same thing centuries before. And Psalm 1611, what did David say? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friend, I don't know what brought you joy. Maybe it was just momentary joy this week. But I want to tell you, I want to remind you, I want to teach you that, that there is no sexual pleasure or chemically induced pleasure or travel destination or bucket list possession that will ever compare to the joy of knowing God. Not going to find it. Not going to find it. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure in the field. And there is nothing on this earth that compares to him or can satisfy your soul like he can. Nothing. Remember that, friend, when you're choosing between flipping on the TV or flipping open your Bible. Or between reading the newspaper or leading family devotions. Or when you're tempted to take another bite, sneak another look, or grab another drink. Jesus is better. He's always better. Why is the grace of God powerful? It's undeserved, it's inexhaustible, it's satisfying. And lastly, grace of God is powerful because it is eternal. Look at verse 9. Paul says... What God enabled him, verse 9, to do, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That's one of those moments where you can just start thinking, okay, he's just getting all religious on me. Like, creator, God, how how many other Christian words can you throw into one long sentence and watch a preacher sweat and try to figure it out? Well, he's making a really critical point here, okay? Paul's reminding the Ephesians and he's reminding us that God's grace is not plan B or some emergency measure. We we didn't force God to be gracious to us by choosing to sin. That's not what went down. God has been planning to be gracious from the very beginning the very beginning the the god who created all things is the god who's been planning before they were created to redeem all things and his purpose before the world was founded to accomplish our redemption restore our relationship to himself through the person and work of christ god's been planning for that since you even were born and before the world was even created so why is that Why does that make the grace of God powerful? Well, I'd say it this way. It's not as though God's first choice was for you to never make a mess of things and unfortunately need his grace. Nor is it as though God's second choice or backup plan was for you to need a little bit of help to get back on track 
Okay? God's first choice. God's only choice. God's eternal choice has been from the dawn of time to transform the darkest corners of sin into a testimony of grace. He's planned that. He's not reacting to you. He's planned to be gracious. He's chosen to be gracious. He's purposed to be gracious. So no, friend, if you're a Christian, the fact that you have this hour by hour, minute by minute, day by day need for the grace of God is not something you should be ashamed of. It's not. Okay, please, please hear me here. That need is an expression of God's glory in your life. Because from eternity past, he has planned for you to need him. He's planned for you to depend on him. He's he's created you to be desperate for him. So he warns us, right, don't sin. Why? Because there are consequences, real consequences, when we do so in this life and in the life to come. But yet, at the same time, he permits our sin and he isn't shaken by our sin. Because long before we sinned, he purposed to turn our sin into a theater for his grace. So, don't be ashamed of the fact that you're in process. Don't be. Don't don't hang your head during the journey or until you feel like you sort of got to be average in this whole Christian thing. Okay? The work God's doing to unite us to himself, unite us to one another, make us more like him, He's planned that from the very beginning. The grace of God is powerful because it's undeserved, it's inexhaustible, it's eternal, and it's satisfying. Okay? That's the first reason we don't lose heart in suffering. Because God's grace is powerful. Here's the second. And this is shorter. Second reason we don't lose heart. The grace of God is powerful. True for Paul, true for the Ephesians, true for us. Second, the purpose of God will prevail. The grace of God is powerful, and the purpose of God will prevail. So, think about this. Why did a book like The Purpose Driven Life sell over 32 million copies and hang out on the New York Times bestseller list for over, I don't know, almost two years? Why? The Purpose Driven Life. All kinds of people bought that book, Christian, non-Christian alike. Why did they do that? Well, I tend to think it's because of that whether or not you are a Christian, one of the most core, inescapable, nagging questions that we all ask is, why am I here? Why am I here? What is the point of my life? You know what's crazy? Sometimes in the most insane times of life, when there's just so many things going around you, you would think, well, I'm just too busy to even go there. Sometimes it's in those points where you most find yourself asking that question. Like, why am I here? And Paul doesn't explicitly ask that question, but he sure does answer it. But his answer doesn't start with us. It starts with God. So look, look at verse 8. Back at verse 8. To me, though I'm the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Who gave it? God did. 
God's the initiator. Every reliable reason for you and I to not lose heart in life starts with God. But the powerful activity of his grace isn't an end in and of itself. There is a purpose. There is a divine intent, a goal driving the outpouring of powerful grace. What is it? Look at verse 10. Two words. Start that verse. So that whenever you see a so that in scripture, you're colliding with a divine purpose. So look at this. So that what's the point of God's grace? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. In verses 10 to 12, God gives us a number of characteristics of his prevailing purpose. And the first one is this. God's purpose is radically God-centered. Now let me just say this. If you get this, friend, that God's purpose, more than anything else, is radically God-centered, that will change your life. I'm not exaggerating. Why do I say that? Because there is nothing God values more than himself. There's nothing God prizes more than himself. There's nothing God is committed to in the entire universe or your entire little corner of it more than his own glory. Why? Because for God to love anyone or prize anything more than his own glory in your and I little corners of the universe would be for God to commit idolatry. Because there is no one in this universe and no thing in your little corner of it that is more glorious than God. And so for God to be anything in his purpose less than God censored would be for God to commit idolatry no less than it would be for us to commit idolatry. God is in the business of making his glory known. Which is why in verse 10 Paul says it is the manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold, in other places, that's used to describe a many-colored robe or a garland of flowers. What's the point? Well, the point is that God's glory is splendid. It's diverse. It's, It's dazzling. It's complex. That's what God's glory is like, and he's committed to to making it known. Our glory, our comfort, our convenience and ease are not the center of this universe. God's glory is. It's the first thing we need to see about his prevailing purpose. It's radically God-centered. Here's the second. God's purpose is church-centered. Well, why do I say that? Well, because Paul says it's through the church, right, that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. So, so track with me here. It works like this. There's nothing God's more committed to than making himself known. His glory, his wisdom, his power. So how does he get that done? Well, he brings together people from every tribe and tongue. Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, Asian and American. And he unites them to himself And in uniting them to himself, he unites them to one another. In the context of the church. That's how he shows his glory off. That's how he proclaims the fame of his name. Which means the church, Kingsway included, is not a human organization. 
that, that's, that's really easy to forget. I mean, it's all the, you know, the conversation about denominations and worship styles and committees and policies and programs. It, the church is not a human organization. It's a product of divine design. But it's not just a product like some sort of next assembly line, next. No, it's the specific intent and goal of the gospel. God's purpose doesn't stop short of creating the church. It culminates in the creation of the church. God's purpose is church centered. And that means... I think this is so important that God hasn't brought us together because somehow we just need help on the journey of life. I mean, we do, but it's always brought us together. He's brought us together. He's he's united us to one another because he's proving, he's displaying, he's proclaiming something through our unity in diversity. And let me tell you, this is a pretty diverse room of people. He's proclaiming something through our unity and diversity that would never be proclaimed if we were apart. That's what he's doing. Namely, the wisdom of his reconciling power. Remember, in the context of Ephesians 3, The mystery that's being revealed is that God could take Jew and Gentile to radically different people, enemies with each other, and bring them together by bringing them both to himself. And friends, that's exactly what he's doing in this church today. And so if you walk in and look around and think, I'm not like some of these people, guess what? You're in the right place. Because God's whole point and goal is to demonstrate his reconciling power by building something called the church, where he brings and unites men and women, young and old, black and white, in diversity to Christ so that we could see just how great his reconciling power really is. God's purpose is God-centered. It's church-centered. And then lastly, it's gospel-centered. Okay, it's gospel centered. And and in this sense, God is proving or revealing something through the church that's it's almost like a movie trailer. It's a preview of coming attractions. That's what the gospel gets done. It it builds the church in such a way that, that the world has a preview of coming attractions, a picture of a reconciled universe. So, so look at verse 10. Why do I say his purpose is gospel-centered? God's making himself known through the existence and activity of the local church, which is what? An eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So follow me here. It's the last point, main point I want to make this morning. God didn't entrust his purpose to the church to make his glory known and then cross his fingers. He didn't. He didn't. He knows all too well that we are all too good at making a royal mess of things individually and corporately. So he ordains a purpose for the church. And then he fulfills the purpose he ordains. That's Paul's point. How? Through the power of the gospel. So what what does that mean practically? It means that our confidence that God will be made known through our life as a church. 
And God will be glorified through our life as a church. Doesn't come from us and isn't found in us. It's found in Jesus and comes from Jesus. So our hope that God's purpose for our lives will be fulfilled doesn't come from us. That's Paul's point. It is what? Realized in Christ Jesus. Accomplished in Christ Jesus. God planned it from eternity past and God secured it through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. So, what do you do with the fact that when you're driving home today, you're thinking, I don't even know what God's purpose for my life is. Matthew said something about it, but I really forget it already. I don't know what God's purpose is, and even if I even knew what it is, I'm pretty sure I'm going to botch it. What do you do with that? Well, you do this, friend. You remember that because God's purpose is gospel-centered, that the Father will not fail to give his beloved Son the reward of his suffering. All things will be united in him. All things. And our existence and activities of church is living proof to every spiritual power, whether good or evil, that there is no separation, no disunity, no brokenness too great for God to overcome. And this church and your life, because of the purpose of God that he secures through the gospel, will testify that a day is coming when disease and division and disintegration will be restored to harmony in Christ. Or, as Peter O'Brien says, I love this, because God's overarching purpose has been fulfilled in Christ, its outworking is certain. Dead certain. So, remember that. Remember that when you feel like your life is a mess and you're tempted to lose heart. What do I need to remember, Matthew? Remember that God's grace toward us will achieve God's purpose for us. Okay, remember that when you feel like your church is messy and you're tempted to lose heart, that God's grace toward us will achieve God's purpose for us. Remember when your family seems out of control, your work seems out of control, your finances are out of control, that God's grace toward us will achieve God's purpose for us. And I'm not just talking about some future day when God comes back and, oh, yeah, I know it's all going to be right in the end. No, I'm talking about today. Today, God's Grace toward us is fulfilling God's purpose for us. Why can I say today? Well, because Paul tells us. Look what he says, verse 10. God's purpose is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might win. Now. Now be made known. The, the reason God's cosmic purpose will prevail in the future is the same reason that God's purpose is prevailing in your life and our life today. What's the purpose? What's the reason? The Father is on a mission to display his glory, and he's doing it in us and in our families and in our church and in our community right now through the power of the gospel. Right now. Whereas Paul says in verse 11, Christ isn't just a Lord. He's our Lord. Which means that today, friend, Every aspect of your life is under the sovereign purpose and control of Christ. 
And the man who said that was sitting in jail. Don't think Paul could say that. That God's purpose will prevail because he was playing golf. He was in prison. But he knew that God's purpose, because it was God-centered and church-centered and gospel-centered, that it would prevail. And because Paul knew that God's purpose will prevail, and Paul knew that God's grace is powerful, he didn't lose heart. And for those two reasons, friend, you can endure in the race of life. Because God's grace is powerful and God's purpose will prevail. And so I exhort you today, don't lose heart and don't dig deep. Look up and trust the Lord. Don't lose heart, but don't dig deep. Look up and trust the Lord. That's why you won't lose heart. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you've been so kind to give us your word that gives us sturdy, strong, steadfast reasons to not lose heart. And Father, I pray for all here who struggle right now with doing just that, with giving up, with tapping out, with losing heart. I pray, Lord, that you would give us new faith in the power of your grace and in the unfailing character of your purpose. Lord, we want to be men and women who persevere. And so we pray for help to believe that your grace is powerful and believe that your purpose will prevail. Would you begin that work in our hearts even right now as we sing together in Jesus' name? Amen.